0: You know, <laughs> we just had a not controversial episode dealing with things like experimental medical technology um, and uh, suicide, as well as potentially disabled-slash-crippled people. And now, now we have this episode. Can I just say one thing, rather that? Keep it civil, Please. That is all I ask. I don't care if you agree with me. I don't care if you disagree with me. Please keep it civil. Okay. Now that we got that out of the way, can I go ahead and admit something? I don't like this episode. I don't. I think it's not a good episode. Uh, I frankly think that it is rather lackluster in several key areas. The B-plot is pedantic and rote the guest star is weirdly flat in the way she portrays herself which i find very strange by the way i want to talk about that Uh, well no i'll I'll, I'll circle back around to that don't let me forget that the episode just it's trying to be allegorical but all it does is kind of mention in distant passing an allegory which could be taken in several directions, and then it's all of a sudden like, oh, wait, we don't know what to do with this. And so the episode just kind of stops. Like, it's just... I don't know how to explain it. This is not what I would call a good episode, Now I said I'd circle back around to those. This episode was written by Jerry Taylor, who actually says she wanted to write this episode. It was something she was really interested in. Um, okay, point, point made. And supervised by Rick Berman. Now... I think I've made it clear that I have kind of a mixed opinion on Mr. Berman. Uh, On the one hand, he's a horrible, despicable, disgusting, terrible individual. But on the other hand, in all seriousness, though, on the other hand, he he is directly responsible for a lot of the reasons why we have modern Star Trek. Why TNG, TS9, and Voyager were even made, you know. So I do have to admit I have a mixed bag. But I just want to share a quote that I have up here in my second monitor prepared for this. And I quote, "Um, Having Riker engaged in passionate kisses with a male actor might have been a little unpalatable to viewers. Now that's specific because that has to do... This was designed as an allegory for homosexuality, if it's not incredibly obvious. Although, interestingly enough this episode has managed to somehow retain relevance thanks to gender identity in the more modern era, which is something that's been kind of a hot-button topic for the last several years now, and with good reason. Now, that's a topic that I want to kind of say... I'm basically going to chop this episode into two halves. In the first half, I'm going to talk about the allegory. And then in the second half, I'm not going to talk about the episode. So hear me out for a second. But I mention this because the actress who plays... Soren is named Melinda Cullen, I believe. Let me double-check that really quick. Yep, uh, Kalia, excuse me, Melinda Kalia. There we go. And Miss Kalia, I have no idea if she's a good actress or not. Uh, she's been a few other things that I've never seen her in. But she is pretty bad in this episode. Like, actively disinteresting. To the point where I feel like she's portraying herself as a very well-painted piece of cardboard... She comes across as weirdly bland, and, and I know I'm not actually the only person who brought this up. Several other people uh, mentioned how strangely boring she was presented, and I wasn't able to determine if it was the actress or the director or the nature of the script or just some kind of miscommunication or whatever. I have no idea why this happens, but it's important because this is a two. Uh, oh shoot, I can't remember the term. It's a two-person script. There's a term for that in theater where there's two people acting off each other, and that's the play, you know, that's the one act or whatever. It's actually a really cool format that fits Star Trek pretty well, when you pretty much have the entire episode revolving around two characters. In fact, I can name an episode that I very much love right off the top of my head that does exactly that, Duet, over in Star Trek Deep Space Nine Season 1. Right? But she just fails miserably in her role as Sorin. I'm going to go ahead and say she for the most part, since she does identify as female, by the way, in case you're wondering. But that's an interesting point to bring up as well. But I don't want to get, so that's another point i got to bring back to. There's just a weird bundle of things to talk about in one bundle, so please please forgive me here, guys. And I'm just, I'm trying not to picture the internet getting a hold of this rumination and, and killing me with sticks because I said something wrong. Chemistry is very important to me when it comes to acting. Now, I've been asked to describe chemistry before, and really it's just about the dynamic between actors. How well they gel with and bounce off of each other. How well they complement each other. How natural or smooth or charismatic they come across when they are together. That's chemistry, right? And I can actually use a direct example. In this very episode, there's a bit where Riker goes to Troy and he they have good chemistry it's this one brief scene and they have surprisingly tight surprisingly well done chemistry between each other you can see these two people as two people who are very close who are very tight friends who care about each other tremendously and there's a lot of little subtle touches and details between how they interact with each other that showcases that Riker and Soren have quite literally none of that in my opinion and that's important Because the entire episode rests on their shoulders. More than anything else, that point right there there is why I consider this to be not a good episode. A sub-average episode, I would say. This isn't like, you know, Last Outpost or, you know, the true Drex of TNG. But it is definitely below average in my opinion. Now, uh, I, I said I'd circle back around to the attraction thing. One of the things that I have seen as an idea several times is the idea of mental and emotional attraction, which is divorced from physical attraction. Now, whether or not this is a thing in real life is something I don't even want to discuss because I don't feel like bringing it down the controversial box, but it's something that's mentioned many times when it comes to science fiction and fantasy both, as an idea that two beings who basically are physiologically incompatible nevertheless fall in love. It's uh, The idea behind it at least in my limited and amateurish understanding of the matter, is that it's all about the concept that there's something about someone's self which forms the, the core basis of you know attraction, completely divorced from the desire to have children, to, to put it into simple terms, the biological side of things, if you will. And I can see why that's an appealing thought, because to be perfectly blunt, I think that's an appealing thought, because I do think that that's a thing that's real in my opinion, in real life. Now it's hard to really say that because I am a human white male who is straight, so I don't really have any legs to stand on here. But I mention that because that's kinda the core idea the episode posits. She is intellectually, mentally, emotionally attracted to him as he is intellectually, mentally, and emotionally attracted to her. Now As it happens, they both happen to be the genders that they happen to be interested in, and that tends to work out. But I bring that up because they didn't know that until they, well, I'm sorry, he didn't know that until he already had an attraction to her. Or at least that's what the idea kind of, it kind of dances around. It doesn't make that very clear. And instead it tends to come across more as she happens to be a woman who he is attracted to because he likes women, which is fine. But it kind of curtails the allegory a bit when this is a guy trying to fight for a girl. That being stated <clears throat> that being stated, I do want to mention that I kind of wish the actor uh, I, the, the person playing Soren had actually been male. I mentioned that quote from Rick Berman, "That's because they were originally thinking about portraying Soren with a guy, with a dude, who was going to be doing it." And that quote from Rick Berman is why they didn't do that. And because they cast Miss Kalia as Sorin, they ended up casting females for all the race. So they all come across as kind of... There's a term for that. There's There's an unkind term for that, too, but that's not what I'm thinking of. Like, when someone is trying to portray themselves as deliberately androgynous, but they're obviously female, because that's what this comes across as, at least to me. It probably doesn't help that their voices really lend themselves towards the feminine side of things. I mean, I've, I've talked about this before. The human ear can always distinguish gender. It's, and I know what you're thinking, why do you care about that, Laura? Because of sound editing. I'm serious. It's actually really hard to try and make a male voice sound female and a female voice sound male. So you can always tell. Uh, This actually came up with a video game I was playing recently where a character was female, but was going through a modulator to make it look like that that she was a he. But immediately I'm like, no, that's a, that's a she. You can tell because of the voice, right? So you can tell that all of these are actresses is kind of my point, which kind of hurts the point as well. (sighs) Now, um, God, so I I want to talk about the pronoun thing. Uh, I speak English i used to speak a little bit of a couple other languages and i'm still trying to learn my own language that i'm developing but i am an english person through and through for better and for worse one of the unique problems with speaking english is english is very big on pronouns when it comes to referring to people otherwise you end up referring to someone by their name constantly which just sounds awkward and weird especially in common vernacular now That means, to summarize, that it is more common to say, well, he went there, and then he did this, and then he went over there and did that, and then he went over there and did this. I said the word he there like four or five times in just a normal way. But imagine if I'm talking about someone who is not a he or a she, so I can't say he or she, and all of a sudden the the language doesn't quite follow through on that. This is actually something I've studied in brief when I was designing my own language, because a lot of languages handle uh, gender pronouns differently. And English is very heavy-leaning on the use of he or she, and it's not the only language that does that, actually. So it kind of gets awkward for a natural English speaker, or a native English speaker, excuse me, to say something like, for example, well, they did this, and then they did that, and then they went over there, and they did this as well, using they instead of he or she, since they usually is being used to refer to as a multiplicative, which makes them just kind of stumble over it for a bit. And I know what you're thinking, Laura, why are you bringing this up? Because Riker brought it up. It's actually interesting. He mistakenly says he, sh- she, corrects him, and then he apologizes, appropriately so, and asks what pronoun to use. And he flat out states that saying it is usually considered an insult. And it's true. It is usually considered an insult. And we've been trying to figure out ways around this in English for you know, the better part of several years now. But I only bring that up because I actually, I'm actually amused they bothered to address that simple problem. Because it's not like Riker was trying to be offensive or anything, right? He just didn't know how to vocalize what he was trying to say. And again, it feels weird to say names. You know, Bob went and Bob did this, and then Bob went over to the Bob area. And just it it just feels weird when you use someone's name the whole time. (sighs) Then there's a few scenes which just kind of meander. Uh, What makes males different from females? Uh, yeah, that's that's something I don't even want to touch on. But I do find it interesting that Riker flat Flatout says that there are very obvious and distinct physical differences, Goes duh. And yet, whether or not there's emotional distinction between the two is something that is a debated topic. I actually think that's interesting, especially for something that came out in the 90s. At least, I think it was the 90s. Hang on, I gotta look that up real quick. What's your release date? Oop. Uh, 92. I was right. Early 90s. I am a little surprised they were able to do that. Although, of course, the whole point that Riker's trying to get across, and indeed that Miss Taylor was trying to get across, was that males and females were equals. That they were different, but they were still unified, you know, which is something I've actually talked about before. You know, we can disagree, but we can still be on the same team. You know, the very Star Trek ideal, as I've said before. Then they have to go for a couple of cheap jokes. (laughs) Because you gotta go for cheap jokes when you talk about gender, right? I think it's a law somewhere. Oh, I mean, we can't even leave the toilet paper. Even Voyager did this, by the way, with the Tom and Bolana thing. There's, a, I'm not even joking. For those you haven't seen, there's literally an episode where Tom is is ignoring his wife, munching on popcorn, and watching TV. I guess she's not his wife at that point, but you get the point. Anyways. <laughs> I do want to talk about the Klingons briefly here. I'm just dancing around this topic so hard. I may even re-record this if I feel like I'm not doing a good enough job. They talk about the Klingons and how heavily dimorphized they are. Now, there's two, you know, that's obviously done as a basically a straw man thing. Worf is supposed to be there to be the typical anti-homosexual person. What I find interesting, though, is he mentions how the women are weak, which is not true in Klingon society. Women are not physically weaker than males in Klingon society. They don't have that particular dimorphism. No, Klingons have cultural dimorphism. Now, obviously, they do have physical dimorphism as well, but my point being, Klingon females are perfectly strong and capable in all sorts of things, as we see many times in this show. No, the real interesting thing is that Klingon females and Klingon males are actually kind of equal. This is something DS9 covers several times. You know, the women control the house, the men control the war, but the women control the support, but the men... Basically, the idea is that, culturally speaking, men and women both fulfill specific roles, which could be considered bad or good, depending on your opinion, but both are considered equal in the fact that both are required. You need the team, otherwise you can't move forward. Most of the time, when there is a Klingon who is, you know, sexist towards a a woman, Klingon or otherwise, it is portrayed as obviously bad and not normal. And I only feel like pointing that out because if I could be blunt, of all the characters who could have the argument, I don't think Worf was the good choice there. Which brings me to the argument that I just mentioned. This is the closest to controversial I'm going to come on this episode, and God I hope I'm not shoving my foot too far into my mouth here. Worf says that the Jedi bother me. And you know they ask why. They just do. This is going to sound so strange, but that's probably one of the most honest sentences in this entire episode. They bother me. They just do. There's not a concrete reason there. There's no real rational thing. It's not like they are actively against his ideals or doing things he finds abominable or trying to hurt people or doing anything actually evil or disgusting or terrible or awful. They're not even something that really bugs him that much. They just They just kind of bother him. They just do. I bring that up because, again, this is intended to be an allegory for homosexuality. And I feel like if a lot of people were willing to accept the fact that one of the bigger reasons why they are bothered by homosexuals is because they bother them, the end, like, because that's it, because they just bother them and you can't really put a real finger on it, that we might be a little bit closer to accepting those kind of differences between people. I'm reminded of a South Park, of all things. I'm not going to go fully into it, but the idea is I've come to believe that there are two layers of tolerance. There's, well, obviously there's nothing you know wrong with you and I tolerate and accept you, and then there's embracing. You know what I mean? And I think too many people, this is just my opinion, too many people try to leap straight to the embrace step, and I think that causes problems. Because they're either being forced there, and they're not comfortable with it, or others are forced, or they are trying to force themselves into it, and they're not comfortable with it, so they can't cope with it, so they don't, so bad things happen. Now, you could say, well, they should embrace it, and that's an entirely valid perspective. But reality tends to incline itself more towards weaning into something, or weaning off something for that matter, rather than simply, all right, everyone is now a turkey. You know what I mean? And I bring that up because, like I said, i kind of like the way Michael Dorn just said the sentence. It was so simply human. Ironically enough, why do they bother you? Why they just do. I don't know. They're they're all the same. No genders. Just it you know. doesn't have anything. He doesn't have anything real there, right? Anyways, so now that I've shoved my foot as far into my mouth as I possibly can and gotten my entire channel destroyed. And, of course, demonetized, and I'm going to have to go jump off of a cliff. Now that we're done, with the, let's talk about the episode proper. Don't worry, this will be short, because the episode kind of sucks. I wanted to talk about all that stuff first, because the last thing I want is for someone to say, oh, you just don't like this episode because it's an allegory. No, I don't like this episode because it's not a good episode. You know, I was thinking to myself, why aren't the Janai part of the Federation? And then it just kind of clicked with me. They couldn't be part of the Federation. If they were, none of the unveiling of the episode would have happened. There would be no, oh, you know, how does this gender work, and how did your, how do your people reconstruct themselves, and how did, you know, is there such a thing as an under society of your own people? Involved? None of that would have happened in the Federation, if they were part of the Federation, excuse me, because they would have known it all already. So they had to be kept in the dark. So there's this surprisingly advanced race, which has space flight, and is able to reach out to the Federation and ask for help, That has never been seen before and, funnily enough, will never be seen again. In fact, I don't believe the Jani have come up in even the, the comics or the books. I haven't heard about them in anything after this episode. And they're just like, hey, help us with their thing. Okay, yeah, sure, no problem. And I found myself wondering. I wonder what percent of people are born with the deformity of having a gender on this world. Or being inclined towards a gender. One of the things the episode doesn't actually explain, and I find this to be a bit of a shame, is they never say if there's any physiological differences behind people who have inclination towards male or female, if it's entirely mental, or if there's some biological stuff, too. Now, based on how the episode is presented, I think it is entirely mental. I could be wrong about that, but considering they keep talking about the psychotechnic treatments or whatever the hell they are, I'm thinking it's more of a mental thing than anything else. That being said, I want to share something real quick. She shares the story with Riker about the kid who was inclined towards male and who was severely bullied for it. And there's a story where he showed up, you know, bleeding with his clothes shredded. That one hit a little home for me. (laughs) I know this sounds so stupid, and again, I'm probably shoving the foot right back in there. But believe it or not, I actually had a lot of experience with bullies back when I was a kid. I've talked about this a few times before, and how I kind of had the, you know, three strikes, okay, now I'm going to beat the crap out of you policy. Part of the reason I had that was when I was even younger, well, bullies were kind of horrible. I don't know if you're aware of that. I don't know if you're aware that bullying is a terrible thing. Uh, Excuse me, hang on. Let me check if this water is still wet. Uh, Yep, looks pretty wet. Okay, we're good. But the, bu- the, the bullies thing really hit home for me. What hit home even more, though, was her talking about being an outcast, about how she would quietly reach out to others who were like her, and how she had to live in fear of being discovered. Now, what she's referring to is obviously something much worse than anything I've ever gone through. And yet, with the exception of the, sca- uh, the severity, I have been through exactly what she has been through. That same concept of ostracization and so being a social outcast and slowly reaching out to other people. It wasn't until I reached... <sighs> Honestly, uh, probably just before high school, 8th grade, I think. When I finally became, <laughs> specifically as a defense mechanism, I became the kid who got along with everybody. Before that, I would, I would just be over in their corner hiding trying not to, to screw up too badly, trying not to draw too much attention to myself, but always looking for anyone else who shared any of the same interests at all. And over time, one of the things that really struck with me is that over time, I started to, to, to realize, to unveil that there were plenty of other kids who had similar interests to me. That's part of how I managed the whole get along with everyone thing. Because when, you, when, you, when you're interested in everything, believe it or not, you can hold a conversation with basically everyone. But that's neither here nor there. The point here is... I know what it feels like to be that kid... Huddling in the corner of the schoolroom. Bleeding. And with a torn shirt. Because of bullies. And I know what that's like... To think that there's like three other people... You can talk to and that's it. And it took time and effort and years... To slowly discover the fact that that was not true. That there are plenty of us to put it into simplistic terms. Now, again, I can't even begin to imagine going through the severely worse things that this woman is describing, that the kid that she describes went through, which she describes as a full-on dystopia. In fact, I wrote down the literal definition of dystopia, because I think it is relevant. An imagined state or society in which there is great suffering or injustice, typically that is totalitarian or post-apocalyptic. That is what she's describing of the Janai Society, in my blunt opinion. A full-on dystopia. The story of the kid being forced in front of the entire school and telling them how happy he was to be cured. I may not be gay, or transgender, or androgynous, or, or any other thing, but I can understand completely how horrible that concept is. The idea of being told that I have to be cured of, for example, liking video games. And if you think that's a nonsensical notion, then you didn't grow up when I did. I actually know some politicians now who still think that people need to be cured of things like video games. Or Star Trek. You remember when liking Star Trek was considered a disease? I'm sure some of you do. Sorry, I I said I was going to leave this topic alone, and here I am right back into it. I guess my point is that up until this point of the episode, the episode is basically a little above average, mostly because the message kind of hit home for me. Now, you're probably sitting there thinking, Lord, you haven't described why you really hate the episode yet. Well, (laughs) then... Uh, then we see Jordy's beard. It's nice to see LeVar Burton in a beard. He he works it very well. Better than I do, that's for certain. And then the episode just dies. Right? What happens is so rote and cliche that it, it is divorced of all emotion for me. Because what happens is the reset button is hit as hard as humanly possible. Soren cannot be a recurring character. This is TNG. We don't do recurring characters. Don't be ridiculous. Even DS9 barely does recurring characters. So no. No. What we need to do is we need to eject her. That means the relationship has to end. So that means Riker has to be like, what has to happen is she has to be cured of her deviancy. And as a consequence of these deplorable actions, she is now no longer capable of feeling anything for him. She has been reprogrammed. Yay! And that is basically how she acts too. Funny story. I would have actually really liked it if the actress had been a lot more emotive and natural, and then the kind of robot thing she's got going on right at the end after reprogramming. That would have been chilling, wouldn't it? <sighs> Instead, she's just the same she always has been, so it doesn't quite work. Which is another point. So, okay, we've got lack of... We've got lack of the, the chemistry. We've got... Uh, not particularly good acting on behalf, of the, uh, on behalf of Soren's actress. We have the reset button being smashed as hard as possible so everything can go back to the status quo. We have the typical, I've got to help her. I can't let you do that according to the regulations. Oh, but you don't understand. And then we've got the, oh, I'll stand up for you because I'm your brother. Okay, actually, in all seriousness, I kind of like that Worf had his back on that. That's pretty cool. And then we've got the the necessary action sequence with the generic music that kind of does this. You you can hear it, right? Can't you hear it? Like the generic uh, late Star Trek action music. And then uh, she's been reprogrammed and they just move on. The end. This episode had no balls, ironically enough. And even if you took completely divorce the episode from the allegory, what you're left with is a boring B-plot that has nothing to do with anything. It's not exciting. It's not engaging. It's not difficult to overcome. It doesn't inform the characters, the setting, or the plot. It's just kind of there, off to the side. A prototypical bad B-plot. The dynamic between the two leads who have to carry the entire episode is not good. The actress is not good. And the episode is reset right at the end. I'm pretty sure this is when Voyager began right here. And it's funny because this is an episode being pushed by Jerry Taylor and Rick Berman. Huh. To be clear, I'm being sincere. I really do think this was the beginning of the problems of Voyager. I I defend Voyager. There's quite a bit of Voyager I enjoy, but Voyager season 1 and 2 is this episode, but worse. I'm gonna go and keep this take. Like I said, just be civil. That's all I ask. If you want to call me out for something that I said wrong, that's okay. Just, you know, be civil about it. That's all I ask. I hope you guys have enjoyed. I'll see you next time.